0: Park United Methodist in Tampa, Florida, this is The Bible Project 2020, a journey to reading the Bible without fear or frustration. I'm your host, Matt Hotho. On this week's episode, Jill Kronz and I sit down with Dr. Sarah Fletcher Harding to discuss Mark chapter 12, verse 35 through chapter 16. Sarah is the Dean of Arts and Sciences and Professor of Religion at Florida Southern College in Lakeland, Florida. Sarah received her PhD in Religious Studies from Marquette University with a concentration in New Testament. She has published in the field of Religion and Science, co-editing Religion and Science Critical Concepts in Religious Studies, a collection of essays and articles on issues of science, religion, and biblical interpretation. We walk through the final 3 days of Jesus's life in Mark, discussing his interactions with religious groups, his death, and the abrupt ending of Mark. Now on to the episode.
1: Sarah, I'm glad that you're here with us today and we're going to talk a little bit about the book of Mark. We're doing a series of podcasts and Bible studies here at our church, and last week we read most of the book of Mark, and this week we're finishing up the book of Mark. But I want to go back and just ask you something that I'm just plain curious about. If Mark was written first, and if Matthew and Luke based what they wrote on the book of Mark, then why did Mark get put second in the Gospels? Shouldn't Mark have come first?
2: So to, you know, the, the second century and third century and fourth century uh, Christians, they're reading those Gospels very differently than we do. And when we ask the question about their, uh, which one came first historically? Um, in terms of why Mark is second, uh, it really depends on uh, the answer to why the Gospel of Matthew is first. And the Gospel of Matthew was a favorite in the early church. Ah. It's the gospel that uses uh, the word Christians. It, it is also has great um, authority through the traditions about Matthew the disciple. Uh, there's actually a Western order of the Gospels. That has them as uh, Matthew, John, Luke, Mark, and then the gospel of Mark is the last. And um, so so the answer to the question why is really, really has to do with what was going on in the early church and the um, traditions and authorities uh, that were conveyed by those different gospels and how they settled into their order.
1: Okay, so the people that put the Bible together uh, lived hundreds of years ago, and they liked the book of Matthew better.
2: <laughs> that's, a, that's a good answer, encapsulated answer. All right,
1: so now we've got Mark placed into the Gospels. I want to focus uh, on some things that happen at the end of the book of Mark, and that is the last few days of Jesus's life. He's traveled to Jerusalem. It's right before the Passover celebration, and Jerusalem and the surrounding communities are packed with pilgrims, people coming to Jerusalem for Passover. And Mark clearly divides what he writes into days. He talks about the end of each day. Jesus goes back to Bethany, where he was staying at an Airbnb or with some friends, and then Mark will say, and then the following day, he goes back to Jerusalem. So if we could kind of go through some of those days and how Jesus chooses to spend those last days that he has with his disciples.
2: Sure, that sounds good.
1: The first day is what we celebrate as Palm Sunday. Uh, This is the only day that Jesus arrives by donkey. He gets a parade. Why is there such a big welcome for Jesus
2: on the first day? Well, he's entering the city of Jerusalem like a king that was foretold in Zechariah 9-9. And so the, the image itself upon the entrance is um, highly loaded in terms of the context of Passover. At Passover, anyone entering the city on a donkey uh, with folks shouting Hosanna and Announcing the king has arrived, that's a a, a political uh, symbol and, a, and a, a poses a, a kind of a, I don't want to say a threat in terms of a, a literal threat to the Romans, but it's posturing against uh, the actual king over Jerusalem. I'd want to back up a little bit and talk about what the author of Mark is doing in the entire gospel. Okay, good. Thank you. So so, uh, two of the major themes in the Gospel of Mark are uh, understanding Jesus as the suffering son of God and also understanding that suffering son of God in light of the use of the word Messiah or Christ. And what you see is a transition from a Jewish understanding of Messiah as a triumphal king, to a the understanding of Jesus as the Christ, as a suffering son of God, who, you know, I, there's great irony involved in the text, who enters Jerusalem as a king, and then is executed.
1: We'll move on from the parade day, because yes. at least in the book of Mark, it doesn't do many things that first day, he Uh, enters the city, it says he looks around the temple, and then he goes back to Bethany. He must have seen things he did not like that first day when he looks around, because the next day when he comes back, he has quite a violent reaction to what he sees in the temple courtyard. Uh, He is not what we think of as your meek and mild Jesus, and he's very upset about what he finds going on in the courtyard.
2: Yeah. Well, this, so this is kicking off the uh, kind of a series of exchanges between Jesus and um, the scribes and the Pharisees and the temple uh, priests and the chief priests. And it, and it's a great kickoff, right? It's a, it's a very dramatic moment. And if you thought he was coming in, uh, Uh, you know meek and mild riding on a donkey um, there's something else that's actually going to be happening so this signals that this is not your messiah king uh, within the Jewish tradition who's going to rule over an earthly kingdom but something else is going on in which the uh, temple and the Jewish leaders are Uh, challenged, and uh, there will be conflict that leads up to the understanding of Jesus as as Son of God.
1: Okay, yeah. Jesus seems to initiate the conflict and the confrontation. He goes in and disrupts the commerce that's going on in the courtyard. He turns, he doesn't just yell at people. He overturns the tables. He overturns the chairs. He, He doesn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple courtyard.
0: Okay. I have a yeah. thought about that. We were talking about that today in our small group, actually. We just read this passage today in our small group. And I encouraged them to just read it and what was happening. And they said, well, he was, was I said, was he doing a nonviolent protest? I asked that question. And in reading the text, I'm like, yeah, I think he's, he's in the same tradition of nonviolent protest. He didn't say he destroyed those things. He just disrupted the processes that were happening there. And it got me thinking, I'm like, yeah, he's still within the the realm of a nonviolent sort of uh, statement there.
1: Well, that's interesting because I think of it as being violent. I mean, when it came time for Jesus to calm the storm, he spoke to it, Mm -hmm. you know, and so, and yet he comes in with these people and he doesn't walk up and speak to them, quote scripture to them. At least we don't know that he does. What Mark points out is they overturns their tables, turns over their chairs and tells them to get out.
2: Well, it's certainly understood, I think, it, uh, within the text as an aggressive
0: action, mm. Yeah, uh,
2: because then the result is that um, uh, the Jews plot to destroy him.
0: I think too many people are quick to read this and say, this doesn't look like Jesus. Why is Jesus so angry here? And I think it's better to read it and go, huh, I wonder if Jesus is actually doing an appropriate form of Christian protest that uh, is, is okay. It seems like in our modern time, right now, where we're at in this moment, I'm reading this text very differently.
2: So the the um, nonviolent uh, protest in the passion narrative that I would want to call to the forefront would be the crucifixion and and uh, willingness and and consent to execution on the cross.
0: Mm. Okay because uh, because as as Son of God, you're saying he could have done something to completely radically change that situation
2: yeah or or not do it at all,
1: yeah, certainly that's what some of the crowd said if you're the Son of God, come down, so the upshot of the um non-peaceful protest that jesus had in the (laughs) temple courtyard was that the religious authorities started to plot against him but it says they didn't do anything right then because the crowd was spellbound by his teaching so if he taught later that day mark doesn't tell us what he said but he does say that the crowd was spellbound by what he had to say We do, though, the next day hear that Jesus was talking about a lot of people. And there's specifically four times that Mark lists that Jesus is challenged by people as he's teaching the next day in the temple. And the The first group is the people that probably were a little upset by what he did the day before when he came and disrupted everything that was going on because they start asking him, who gave you the authority to do these things?
2: Right, and and he refuses to tell them right? And so there's, right. there is this um, continuing theme of misunderstanding, uh, you know, from disciples not being able to understand to now crowds not being able to understand. And, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, he says, well, then, then I'm not going to tell you. And it's, and it lends back to his reasons for telling parables to begin with in Mark.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think I was looking at it as if Jesus is thinking, well, you're not really asking a serious question and I'm not going to waste time on answering you. So he deflects the question and he moves on.
2: Yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a little stronger than that. I think it's uh, standing against uh, their authority and again, uh, kind of uh, fleshing out and, and, establishing uh who he he is as messiah and how he can be understood as messiah over against the authority of of uh, the jews the authority of the temple the authority of um, eventually, the Herodians show up here in chapter twelve. Yeah,
1: they come next. The Pharisees, uh-huh, the, yeah. <laughs> the Pharisees and the Herodians want to ask him a question about taxes. Go ahead.
2: Uh huh. Yeah. Well, and and the Caesar, right? Caesar's image on the coin. Uh, uh, of course, that's that authority is is under God as well in terms of that exchange. Uh, it, there, it's a very defiant Jesus that we see uh, in chapter 12.
1: Okay, so when he threw people out of the temple courtyard the day before, he was being physically, if you will, defiant. Sure. T- today, he's verbally defiant.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good way to, to to present it, yeah. So next comes the Sadducees.
1: And they, they, they uh, serve up a question about the resurrection in the, right. in the form of a story. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, a little background on Sadducees. So in Sadducee Judaism, Judaism, there is no belief in resurrection. So the Pharisaic tradition is is the Jewish uh, group that carries uh, some of that tradition, but not the Sadducees. So the question itself is uh, a a question that that they're clearly, it's not a real question for them. They're trying to trip him up and just see what he has to say about it because they are quite certain uh, that there is no resurrection.
1: Right. They're not really asking a question that they don't know the answer to, at least in their Uh own minds.
2: Uh That's right. And, you know, the, the framework of the question is, uh, the images are very interesting, right? In terms of here's this woman, um, she's been married seven times. And so in the resurrection, (laughs) who's, whose whose wife is she? Right. Uh You know, the answer is great. You know, it, it, it just gets bogged down, uh, within the marriage question. And, uh, he, it basically tells them that they have they have no understanding, uh, let alone to tell the difference between right and wrong uh, and then uh, kind of scolds them, and that none of it's going to matter anyway So
1: next, there comes a scribe, and he might be asking a question he actually wants the answer to. <laughs> he ask okay. about the most important commandment, mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and and I think he's also wants to know what he's going to say, though. And I think it's part of this sequence of polemical uh, dialogue, these attack dialogues, trying to catch Jesus up. And so, um, you know, which is the greatest commandment? And, you know, Jesus sums them them up in a couple of different ways. Um, The Lord, our God, is one. So you get the, the theological component, and then you get the ethical component, uh, which is uh, love your neighbor as yourself.
1: Yeah, he, he quotes scripture to the scribe, too. It goes back to Deuteronomy mm-hmm. and Leviticus and says, OK, here you go. This is your answer. And yeah. The scribe didn't have much to say about that.
2: <laughs> right. right. Because there, he's in agreement. He's like, yeah, that's right.
1: So Jesus leaves Jerusalem again, and the next day he comes back for the final time. And Mark says that the disciples more or less spent the whole day in preparations for the Passover. So this this seems to have taken all day. What would they have been doing that day?
2: Yeah, for Passover, they would have been um, securing a room to celebrate the Passover Seder meal. And um, the whole city would have been uh, doing that. There, it would have been very um, bustling and busy and uh, especially in terms of uh, preparations for the Seder. And, uh, you know, on the heels of it, uh, eventually we get a, um, a, a Last Supper scene that's been juxtaposed with the Seder meal traditions that uh, travel with uh, Passover.
1: Yeah, Jesus seems to be, at least the part that I'm familiar with, seems to be following the Passover ritual, but then he changes it, and he adds some things about himself. So I think that's significant, and I wonder if the disciples picked up on it at the time.
2: Oh, I I would think that... Um, uh, certainly, the readers of Mark would pick up on it. Uh, anyone who knew the Jewish traditions, uh, even Gentiles, uh, from that uh, uh, Jerusalem context, uh, this annual uh, uh, festival and all of its traditions—the you know—you've you, already commented on just the consumer and economic components that are involved with it. And um, it, it's, a, it's just this great text where, on the one hand, things seem kind of normal because it's, it's going uh, about the way it always would <laughs> in terms of Passover ob- observance.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, uh, there are dramatic uh, differences and, of course, the culmination of it. Uh, in the execution is uh, just uh, again more of that tension. I think that's in the text.
0: So this sense in which I'm the Messiah, I'm coming to bring about a new reign, a, a new uh, um, reign of God, but this sense in which that's going to require my death is would have been unsettling for the uh, for the for the yeah. listeners.
2: Well, so for again within Mark, any reference to that suffering is always subverted in the text until it actually happens. And so um, the you know the understanding of Jesus as suffering Son of God once he dies, uh, it is the centurion who says, "Ah, this this is the Son of God," uh, seeing that he's breathed taken his last breath, and so at least you know, leading up to the um, passion narrative, uh, the chapters we've been looking at, there's all kinds of misunderstanding. It's the messianic secret at work
0: right.
2: uh, where Jesus's identity is, is um, uh, not uh, known fully by those within the text and the hearers of this, of the gospel of Mark would recognize it all immediately, which I think we'll talk about the ending later, but it accounts for it. Um, And so uh, a listener is in the know. But again, the way it is depicted in the text, those involved don't and can't know until he has died And yes,
1: I definitely want to talk about the ending of the book of Mark. I just don't think we can close out a discussion of the book of Mark without touching on the remarkably abrupt ending of the book of Mark. Uh, I have seen theories that maybe someone lost the last page of what he wrote. But if we presume that Mark meant to end it that way with scared women running away, why did he do that?
2: So, I mean, I have to comment a little bit on the textual problems. Yeah, there in the manuscript tradition, there are different endings to the Gospel of Mark, and yes. um, uh, four of them if we if we sorted them out. and the the two that are usually mentioned in the footnotes of a Bible uh, in particular are, you know, does the gospel of Mark end at 16.8 or does it end at 16.20 in terms of a, 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 an original gospel of Mark, right? Right. And at the end of the day, in uh, a, a reconstruction of the text, the strongest reading is that it ended at verse eight, uh, which puts us in the position with uh, the women. Uh, uh, hearing this this uh, great news and then saying nothing to anyone. Mm -mm. And um, and so that is the million dollar question. So why in the world would an author uh, do that? And again, I think it's connected to the larger themes in the gospel of Mark and it, it places the proclamation, the responsibility for proclamation on the hearer uh, of the, of the text or of the tradition so that uh, if someone, someone has got to say something, right, and, and a hearer having understood it, uh, in light of Jesus' death, the resurrection is still there, right? The, the tomb is empty. Right. Uh, you just don't have post-resurrection appearances uh, tidied up. Uh, but again, the, um, so the, the disciples aren't seen as the ones who are uh, proclaiming the resurrection, but it places the uh, urgency on behalf of the one who is hearing this.
1: Okay, so the ending of the book is meant to motivate, inspire the listeners of the story that this needs to be announced. Everyone needs to know. I like to think of the ending this way. Mm -hmm. because this was originally a story that was told by a storyteller to an audience before it was written down. And particularly after Sarah pointed out that if the women didn't tell people what had happened, who is going to tell it, now in my mind, I can hear the storyteller getting to the end and saying, and the women were afraid and didn't say anything to anyone, pausing, turning to the audience and saying, now, what are you going to do now that you have heard this story?
0: Thank you, Sarah, for joining us and for bringing Jesus's final days in Mark into focus for us. We're still worshiping online Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. You can join us on Facebook or at hydeparkumc.org forward slash live. You can also connect with us on Facebook. Search for The Bible Project 2020 and request to join. Jill Krantz produced this episode. I'm Matt Hotho. I'll see you next week.